Yes, Lord, you are a good, good Father. Thank you that you define to us what is good. Not our definition, but your definition of a good, good Father. Thank you. You are beyond our comprehension. Thank you, Lord, today as we come to your word. Speak to us and help us to grow our knowledge in knowing our good, good Father. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. Amen. Have you heard of a story about a first grade uh, Sunday school teacher? And she asked the class to think about something important and then draw a picture of it. And each child began working on the special picture they wanted to draw. And the teacher noticed one little boy who seems to be more focused than the rest. The others had finished, and he was still working. And so the teacher walked over to his desk and said, Jimmy, what are you drawing? He looked up, and he said, Teacher, I'm drawing a picture of God. The teacher said, Jimmy, nobody knows what God looks like. And then Jimmy thought for a minute and replied, Well, they will when I finish this picture. Many people have a mental picture of what God is like. If I were to ask you to fill in a blank, I picture God as, what would you fill in? J.I. Packer uh, recently passed away a couple of months ago, and he says that metal images, metal, metal images are the consequence of mental images. Metal images are the consequences of mental images. What we put out is what we have been putting on in our mental mind, conceive and think about, and then it expresses it out in an object. So metal images are the consequence of mental images. You know, in this, we know there are two sources of information about God uh, in theologically. The first one is revelation, meaning to say that God revealed Himself to us revelation. He chose to make an effort, chose to reveal Himself to us, and that is called revelation. And He primarily revealed to us through the Word of God. And that is what happened in, in, uh, in the story that we have been covering thus far, that Moses is up on the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, receiving revelation from God. God is going to reveal to us who He is. And then there's a second source of uh, information about God, and that is imagination. You make it up as you go along. It's you made up who God is. Whatever sources you draw it from, uh, from your experience or whatever, you make up who God is. Revelation, imagination. One up on the mountaintop receiving revelation from God about who He is, and then the people down at the valley put on putting on imagination of what God is supposed to be like. We have arrived now in chapter 32. Today I'm going to cover 32, 33, 34. If you had already had a chance to read through it, that's great. At least it's a bit easier than uh, uh, last couple of weeks or last week 
or two weeks ago, uh, where all the instruction on building the tabernacle. So chapter 32 to 34, sandwiched between the instruction and the construction of the tabernacle. I've just covered the instruction, and then there's the break here of the rebellion. Then there's the actual construction of the tabernacle given by God, the specific instruction. And as we think through this uh, final part of the Exodus, in many ways, uh, Exodus 25 onwards to the end of uh, a chapter, it resembles Genesis 1 to 11, isn't it? Creation account. Creation, uncreation, and then recreation. God created the world, and after that, He completely uh, sent out the flood, and then He recreated everything. So creation, uncreation, recreation. And here, there's a clear message being conveyed, 32 to 34, that I want to give to you. Uh, if you want a brief outline, the outline will be rebellion, mediation, and then restoration. Rebellion, mediation, restoration. Rebellion by the people of God by building the golden calf. And then mediation by Moses to plead with God not to destroy his people. And then restoration by God by reissuing a second set of commandments and the promise to drive out the nations and bring the Israelites into the land of promise. So rebellion by the people, mediation by Moses, restoration by God. Exodus so far before we reach uh, coming to this text in chapter 32, so far so good. God delivered the people out of Egypt after being enslaved for 400 years. He saved them when they had no hope. He delivered them from Pharaoh, performing the ten plagues, delivered them, crossed the Red Sea. He conquered their enemies. He provided for their needs. There was pillar of cloud and pillar of fire for navigation. Moses received ten commandments and gave them to the people. He received blueprints for the tabernacle. He received instructions for the priesthood. And God spoke to them audibly from the mountain, and they entered into covenant agreement with them. In chapter 19, in chapter 19, verse 8, when they entered into this covenant, it says here in verse 9, chapter 19, verse 8, the people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to God. And then they were so afraid, they requested that Moses act as a buffer between them and God because they were terrified at God's presence. Look at chapter 20, verse 18, after he received the Ten Commandments. When the, verse 18 says, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. So they, they, everything moves so well. They received the content commandment. They heard God's voice audibly. They have Moses as their mediator. And so, and for the next 40 days, Moses was up on the mountain, chapter 19, 21, all the way to end of chapter 31. 40 days, Moses is up the mountain in the presence of God, receiving God's instructions on what 
life lived in relationship with a holy God should look like. An instruction for the ten where God would dwell with His covenant people. So that is the, the thing. God said, build a temple, build a tent for me at the moment. Later on, when they enter promised land, Solomon will build a temple. But in the meantime, I want to dwell with you. We'll be married. We're going to live together. We're a covenant now, and I want to dwell with you. But something happened that makes it impossible for God to dwell with them. And then, until the end of chapter, you're going to find out, end of the, the, the book, you're going to find out what it takes to bring back the presence of God. So that will be my guiding thought, uh, subsequently explaining to you about the golden calf incident. What would it take to bring back the presence of God? Because of this particular rebellion, God cannot dwell with them. But they have to, so something needs to happen in order for the presence of God to return and back. So, but let me just look at uh, chapter 32 now. It records the covenant treason of God's chosen people. God had rescued them from slavery so that they would be a people who would worship Him exclusively. But something happened that broke the flow of God's plan of wanting to dwell with them. Look at chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and then they said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. They have waited for just a little bit, about six weeks, a little less than six weeks, 40 days. Moses hasn't come down yet, and they were impatient. We don't know what happened to him. Come on, we want, we want God. We want, we want you to make us the image of this God that you've been talking about. You know, Israel waited 400 years in Egyptian slavery for God to send them a deliverer. deliverer. 400 years. And Moses waited 40 years on the backside of the desert before God was ready to initiate that deliverance. And now the Israelites have been delivered and they can't wait for 40 days for Moses to consult with God and receive his marching orders. 40 days they can't wait. God waited 400 years, 40 years, and just for 40 days they were impatient. They stray when Moses delayed. You know, understand God's plan will almost always include a strategic delay. And to follow God, you've got to be able to handle them. Only six weeks have passed, and since they heard the audible voice of God telling them not to make any idol, now within a matter of days, they made a choice that directly contradicted one of God's simplest instructions. And the effects of their remarkable experience of God have faded quickly. Here is the mystery of sin and the weakness of human nature. The somehow experience of God doesn't quite sustain. And so the key, is, the key to everything is patience. Someone said you get the chicken by hatching the egg, not by smashing it. And when delay your instant gratification, you transfer 
you transfer, you, you begin to operate from principle rather than desires. Learning to wait rather than satisfying instant gratification always teaches us to operate by principle rather than by desire. Saying no to impulses puts us in control of our own appetites rather than vice versa. So they demanded Aaron to build them a god. I'll explain about that as we move in now to verse 2. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your son, and your daughters are wearing and bring them back to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in reverie, which always has sexual connotation in that, in the original word. Sadly, in this instant, Aaron became the sad father of those who base ministry on the primary question, what do people want? Many people build around ministry on what do people want? We give to people what they want, we get them. We hook them in. And there are many ministries who did that uh, in America, here. If we apply the principles of the market to ministry, we will always end up with idolatry. Many within the new paradigm church, so-called, they're obsessed with growing church, they always turn to this kind of marketing strategy of trying their best to see what, where people itch, and then we try to scratch where people itch, and then you get them in here. And this is called the new paradigm church. They will loudly proclaim that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But they probably have redefined salvation. Salvation is not simply as we know from the Scripture, under the new gospel, the forgiveness of sin and the transferring and the imputation of righteousness. It is not a deliverance from the wrath of God upon a deserving and rebellious people. The new gospel is a liberation from low self-esteem, a freedom from emptiness and loneliness a means of fulfillment and excitement, a way to receive our heart's desire, a means of meeting our needs. The old gospel is about God and the new gospel is about us. The old gospel is about sin and the new gospel is about needs. The old gospel is about our need for righteousness, but the new gospel is about our need for fulfillment. The old gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But the new gospel is attractive. Many are flocking to the new gospel, but it is altogether questionable how many are actually being saved. So sadly, Aaron has become the father of this kind of movement who gave to people what they want, what they want. 
The problem is you give to uh, scratch what is itch is that those are not the real problem. The whole pro- their real problem is not the external of itching. It's the heart issue, something that's inside of them. Scratching will not solve those problems. Scratching will not make your, your heart failure become better. Scratching is not going to make your cancer become better. That is the real issue when we begin to meet felt means and not meet the real need of what the scriptures say about us that we need. One thing I need to tell you uh, about this particular text from verses 2 onwards that we just make that Moses make this golden calf. Many people think that the calf is an idol. Many believe that it's an idol, uh, Canaanite god or Egyptian god or something like that. But the calf is actually Yahweh, not another deity, not another god. They are asking Aaron to put this Yahweh into an image. So they still want to worship God, but in an image form of this Yahweh God. Why I say that? Because from the text that I just read to you, I think it's quite clear when, look at verse 4 for example, when Aaron finished building the calf, he said this in verse 4. He said, he took out he took what they handed him and they made it into the idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning with a tool. And then he said to them, this, this are your God, or this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Yeah, that's, that sentence is important. He's specifically referring to Yahweh God, who brought you up out of Egypt. And if you go back to the Ten Commandments, uh, chapter 20, verse 1, and that is exactly... In the Jewish Bible, actually, that is the first commandment. The first commandment is, is not, you shall have no other gods before me. That's not the first commandment in, according to the Jew, Jew. The first commandment is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So here, there is a direct parallel, and so you know that it is refer, this calf is actually referring to Yahweh, not another deity. There's another second reason why I believe this is uh, uh, the calf is Yahweh and not another deity is look at verse 5. After he built it, after he said this, he said, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and then he announced it to them, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. And probably you look at your Bible, the Lord is capital letter. It's referring in, in the original word is Yahweh. So again, Moses specifically, uh, that is a covenant name for God. And he does emphasizing that the festivities surrounding their worship of the golden calf were directed towards Yahweh, not another deity. And thirdly, uh, if you look at verse 5 and 6 again, the people's actions towards the golden calf are very similar to their actions towards Yahweh, Earlier in the narrative, the building of an altar, offering burnt offerings and peace offerings and the meal, which spell out in verse 5 and 6, all have parallels in Exodus chapter 24 before when they made the covenant, uh, when God made the covenant with the people. Exactly the same format of offerings, uh, burnt offering, peace offerings and the meal. They all have parallels with what they did earlier on. If I may just 
slot in this a little bit, but I don't want to emphasize too much on it as I have no time. If you were to read 1 Kings chapter 12 later on this afternoon, after the kingdom is split, uh, King Saul, King David, King Solomon, after King Solomon, the kingdom split, remember? Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Jer- Rehoboam retained the southern kingdom and Jeroboam went to the northern kingdom. And the worship has always been in Jerusalem, but now, because the kingdom split, Jeroboam built two temples, one in Dan and one in Bethel, and they put an image in there. What was the image? The golden calf. Uh, So they are not... So in this incident of the golden calf, they are not switching gods, in other words. They want a physical, they just want a physical representation of the God they have a covenant with, Yahweh. So this golden calf is Yahweh. It's not another deity. It is Yahweh that they picture. And uh, it is absolutely also violating what God has said in chapter 20, at the end of the uh, uh, Ten Commandments, in chapter 20, verse 22, you, you look at it, the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelite this, you have seen for yourself that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourself gods of silver or gods of gold. And the question I have is, why is it so bad? Why is this such a grave sin that they made this calf? Why is making an image of God, after all, is Yahweh, if they are mind thinking, such a big deal to God. Why can't we put this Yahweh God into an image and worship it? I have two reasons, and then I'll move on. I think first reason is because not just only is against what God say. I mean, it's clearly against God. We are not going down the pathway. That is obvious, you know. Uh, you can't make. Why we can't do that is because you can't make an image, or find an image, or get an image that can comprehensively represent God. God embodies so many attributes that not a single image could show Him, to contain Him in one image. Every image by its own nature is limited, but God is unlimited. A bull might represent power, for example, but it won't represent compassion. It won't represent love. It won't represent forgiveness or patience or kindness or God is a just God. It doesn't convey who God is. No matter what kind of image you can come up with, it cannot comprehensively describe Yahweh God. That is why God to the prophet Isaiah, said, To whom then will you liken me? Or what likeness will you compare to him? You can't find an image that represents who he is. So it's limiting by its very nature. You can't. Is it picture paints a thousand words? But what if, what if God is zillion words? How are you going to describe? How are you going to put it into a picture? You can't. And that is why we don't have an image. 
of God. The second reason is when you make an image, you're making God into your image, essentially. You're selecting something you like about God and you're focusing on that only, leaving out the rest. And Christians do that all the time, different theological persuasion. So by the nature of making something, you are basing it on your wish fulfillment, your imagination. Remember Revelation and imagination that we talk about? Two sources of knowing God, revealed through the Word of God, or it's just your imagination. Metal images are the consequence of mental images, as J.I. Packer said. And so that's the second reason why we don't put it into, or you can't do that. So I just want to underscore that the golden calf is, is their attempt to put God into an image, not worshipping another God in that sense. So the next day, the people, verse 6, so the next day, the people rose early and they sacrificed burnt offerings and they presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in reverie. In other words, out came the drinks and off came the clothes. As always, the sexual connotation is there on the word reverie. It was a big celebration, but it was worshipping the wrong God, indulging the wrong behaviour and tasting the wrong kind of joy. And then when Moses was up on the mountain, the Lord said to Moses in verse 7, Go down, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. Isn't it interesting that God said, Now your people. God is so angry, so sad, so frustrated that after all this effort, after so much effort has been through that, and they're still able to abandon the one true Yahweh. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them. Verse 8. And they made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Repeated many times, isn't it, throughout the book of Exodus. And God is so furious and so angry and so upset. He said, Now leave me alone. Moses, so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. I'll come back to verse 10 later on. That is an incredible offer, isn't it, that God made to Moses. I'll destroy everybody and I'll start with you again. Then I'll make you into a great nation. And here is where Moses pleaded with the Lord. Lord, please don't. Verse 11, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? He said, God, don't, don't make, your reputation is at stake. You went all the trouble bringing them out and then the Egyptians, they mock at you. You brought them out so that they would die. Don't, Lord, turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disasters on your people. And then verse 13, Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And verse 14 is an incredible verse. The Lord relented. And He did not bring on His people the disaster He had threatened. 
Now, I really have, I would love to go down the track of this part of it. Maybe some other time we can explore a sermon on that. Uh, the Lord relented. It can create some theological problem because between the sovereignty of God, that God is unchanging, He does not, He knows what's happening, you know, and then at the same time, prayer. Does prayer change God at all? Can God be changed by our prayer? There's this tension, isn't it? And all that I want to say, uh, uh, because I have so much that I want to plow through, all that I want to say is that we have the whole intention. God relent. Because people say, well, can God do that? If God relents, does it not impact the doctrine of God's sovereignty? He's unchanging. But it is through Moses pleading that God relent. So God is almost like contingent, depend on, on, on prayers for Him to act on something. He's not sovereign in the sense. Does God change His mind? Does, does God change His mind? Does prayer move and change things? We have to hold this kind of thing in tension. Because if you go one or the other, you're, you'll be, you'll be uh, moving into a very uh, uh, dangerous territory in some sense. We must hold in tension the sovereignty of God and then praying, changing the mind of God. You have the whole intention. If you emphasize only on the sovereignty of God, then it becomes fatalism. But if you only believe everything depends on you, that through your prayers and things will change and move, then you will lead to this theology, theological issue on the openness of God, or open theism, or free will theism. Openness theology. That is what uh, uh, Harold Kushner, isn't it? Uh, when bad things happen to good people. Uh, this is what he said. Because he, he, he undermined the sovereignty of God. This is what he said. Are you capable of forgiving and loving God even when you have found out that He is not perfect? Even when He has let you down and disappointed you by permitting uh, bad luck and sickness and cruelty in, this, in His world? and permitting some of those things to happen to you, can you learn to love and forgive Him despite His limitations? As Job does, and as you once learned to forgive and love your parents, even though they were not as wise, as strong, or as perfect as you needed them to be. So do you have this tension, uh, sovereignty of God, and prayer to move and change things. We have both things emphasized in the Scripture. All that I want to say as I want to move on, is that you must pray as if everything depends on you. And you must trust as if everything depends on God. And that will be the balance that you need to hold. That God is sovereign. He knows despite of our failure, despite of our limited understanding of many things, or even prayer, God still is in charge and still moves. But yet at the same time, God ordained the means of prayer for Him to act on certain things to make it happen. And we have to hold that intention. So pray as if everything depends on you and trust as if everything depends on the Lord. So that's what I want to leave you behind on that text. And then Moses turned and went down to the mountain with two tablets of the covenant in verse 15, uh, law in his hand. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets written on the finger of God. And then look down to verse 19. 
when Moses approached the camp and he saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the golden calf the people had made and he burned it in the fire. And then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and he made the Israelite drink it. What a weird way to do it, isn't it? I did a bit of study on that. There are so many views on that. Uh, and it's interesting. Burn it in the fire, ground it to powder. So now you've got powder, dust, go calf. And he scattered it on the water and he made the children of Israel drink it. That's hardcore, man. And this is as if what is uh, on Moses' mind. I'm going to take your God and I'm going to grind it up and you're all going to drink it. I don't know what kind of uh, uh, tablet you take if you have upset stomach, but this is the reverse. Reverse of it. Instead of taking away an upset stomach, I imagine drinking powdered golden calf and mixed with water that they would give you an upset stomach. Maybe that's exactly what Moses is trying to do. Wanted them to have an upset stomach. I want you to be sick of your own sin. The horror of doing this, of putting God into an image. And one uh, Jewish scholar said, the horror of the act of building of the golden calf is encapsulated by this author who remarks that no sooner had the wedding service of holy consecration at Sinai ended that we obscure Israel acting in a way. It is like committing adultery on your wedding day. Committing adultery on one's wedding night. And that is so sickening that Moses said, you drink it, I want you to be so sick of your own sin, of this sin of worshipping God in an image. And of course, there are other studies that talk about in numbers, about this method of drinking things that you have upset stomach to prove that you are guilty of the sin. I think it's Numbers chapter 5. Uh, um, you can look at it up. Uh, maybe when, uh, when the, the, the slaughter begins of the 3,000 uh, people, they've got to find out who is it. So by drinking it, you create them that upset stomach means these people are guilty. Something like that. There are a lot of theory that put forth. But I just go with a simple what the Word of God says. I, I do think that Moses just wanted them to have an upset stomach. I just want you to be so sick of your own sin. And then there's another puzzle account. comes verse 21. Uh, he said to Aaron, What did these people do to you? You are a high priest. You're supposed to be a priest. That you led them into such great sin. The word great sin appeared three times in chapter 32. Not just sin, great sin. And look at Aaron's excuse. Amazing excuse. I don't know why Moses accepts his excuse. Do not be angry, my Lord. You know how prone these peoples are to evil? So what? My question is, so what? You are a leader. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. He might not come back. He might be struck dead by, by God. And therefore, they might not come back. So we still need this God to accompany us to our promised land. Make us God who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. 
So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold. Then I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Amazing, isn't it? Throw it there. Poop! The calf came out. Just like my noodle machine at home, you know, putting some flour and putting egg. Poop! Noodle come out. But this is not. It specifically says in verse, uh, is it verse 3? It make it into a two, fashioning it with a two. It says fashioning it with a two. And, and here he just conveniently say, wow, I just threw the gold and then I'll come with this, this calf. And here is where the punishment comes. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them out, get out of control. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel said. Each man strapped a sword in his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. And the Levite did as Moses commanded. And that day, about 3,000 of the people died. Interestingly, the giving of the law, 3,000 people died. When you come to Acts, when the Holy Spirit descends, Peter preached a message, 3,000 were saved. I don't know whether there's any any parallel there, uh, but this is where Moses stands. Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Everybody was given the opportunity to repent. They were all invited to declare their allegiance to the Lord again. Given that there were around 2 million people uh, in the camp, we, must, we may assume that 1,997,000 responded to Moses' appeal and took their stand with him. 3,000 people died. Now, this is where I want to move on now. Sorry, uh, this is uh, taking a little bit slightly longer, but hang in there with me because I want now to, to quickly summarize and move towards what does it mean to bring back God's presence? Because God is not going to dwell with them anymore. Look at verse 30, for example. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. See, the second time the great sin appeared. But now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. But yesterday, isn't it over already? They're sorry. They came to Moses. I'm, I'm sorry. So why the Lord is not returning? Because sorry is not enough. Something else needs to happen before the presence of God can return to His people. Sorry is not enough. What they need is atonement. What they need is atonement. What is atonement? Very simply, atonement is what it takes to put something that is wrong right. That's the meaning of atonement. What does it take to make something wrong right? If you divide the English word atonement into three parts, at one meant, at one meant, if two people are divided by a dispute, the atonement is what it takes to bring them to be at one moment, at once. So atonement is simply what it takes to put something that is wrong right. Wherever there is an offence, we face the question of atonement. What will it take to make what is wrong right? Some years ago, I involved in a, a minor car accident. It was my fault, clearly. And I went out to the man and I just said, don't worry, it's my fault. I, will. I just can't say I'm sorry 
and then just walk away. His car was damaged. I would have to pay for it, insurance company and all that kind of things. Being sorry won't do. I need to pay for it. And that is atonement, making something wrong and right. And so here, if Moses in verse 10, so sorry is not enough, all right? Sorry is not enough to bring back God's presence. Verse 10, oh, sorry, uh, uh, Moses may be thinking, what more can I do to bring back God's presence? Because God is not going to come back. And verse 30, 32, he says that, he says that now, he says, Lord, maybe I can go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin, he tells the people. Remember, God made him an offer. I told you this in verse 10. They why wipe these people out. God, Moses has some standing in that sense, you know. He said, well, I can go and make atonement for your sins. So Moses went back to the Lord and he said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. So we have a volunteer, the greatest spiritual leader in the Old Testament, step up to the plate. He's ready to lay down his life for the people. If he has to enter hell to make atonement for them, he's ready to do that. But, Moses, but God said, no deal. Moses, no deal. Making atonement is completely out of your league. Not to uh, remind you that he, has a, he had a murder on his record. And a man with sin of his own is no position to atone for the sins of others. Sinful people cannot atone for sinful people. Only sinless one can atone for sinful ones. So there is no atonement. So sorry won't do. Moses tried to step in someone. It won't do. So what can be done? Because in chapter 33, God said to Moses, I cannot go with you. You go, I'll send an angel to go with you. I cannot go with you. And in chapter 33, verse 4, they began to mourn when they heard that Moses said to them that the Lord is not going to go with them. Look at uh, uh, verse 34. They mourned, 33 verse 4. When they heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any garb ornaments. That's their way of being contrite. So Moses was thinking, then what will it take to bring back the presence of God? If being sorry won't do it, Moses can't do it, what will it take to atone for our sin? Ah, maybe painstakingly obedience will do it. And so for seven months, for seven months, they painstakingly follow the instruction given by God on the building of the tabernacle. Ah, maybe painstakingly obey everything that God desires will bring back the presence of God. And so for seven months, they, they construct the, the, the tabernacle without the presence of God. God dwells outside of them. It says in the chapter 36, verse 8, all the skilled men among the workmen made the tabernacle. And then they list down all this detail. And accumulating in chapter 39, verse 32, all of this detail that God gave to them is to make a single point. The people did exactly in chapter 39, verse 32, say the people did exactly what God told them to do. 
They followed the commands of God down to the tiniest detail. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. So maybe you say, sorry, cannot bring back God's presence. Moses, the, the finest man in the Old Testament, wouldn't be not able to provide atonement. Maybe by obedience down to the T, we'll bring back the presence of God to dwell with us. So imagine the woman sewing embroidery on the curtains of the tabernacle, and then they are feeling that God was so distant. And as she followed exactly the instruction given by God, she thought, I've got to be obedient to God. Perhaps this will bring back His presence. How I wish I could know the presence of God in my life. I just be faithful. And then you see this man doing the basin, you know, down to the detail measure. You know, he's thinking, oh, by doing this, you know, God would come back to us. God will come back to us. So for seven months, the people gave themselves to a daily detailed obedience to the law of God. But at the end of it all, there was still no sign of the presence of God. And by that time, they must have been wondering, what it, would it take to put what was wrong right and bring back the presence of God? And this is the key, isn't it? To grasp if we are to understand the story of the Bible. Many people feel that if they are sorry enough, for long enough, things will become right with God. There are others who think that if they shape up to a more detailed obedience to God's law by attending church, saying prayers and reading the Bible, this will make things right with God. But right back in the second book of the Bible, in Exodus, God is teaching us that although these things are good, they are not enough. We need an atonement. And that is where, at the end of chapter 40, the book of Exodus brings us to the day when a priest would offer the first sacrifice in the newly constructed tabernacle. At the end of the book of Exodus, the great day finally arrived. You can read about that in chapter 40 of Exodus, last chapter, but I, the fuller treatment of this in Leviticus chapter 9. All right, the fuller treatment of this in Leviticus chapter 9. I just want to read to you a few verses. Leviticus is just one book after Exodus, so if you're holding a physical Bible, it's very easy to flip over. Uh, verse, chapter 9, verse 6. After seven months in which the people had been longing for the presence of God to return, Moses finally said, Aha! Verse 6, This is what the Lord has commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. So what is this thing that the Lord has commanded them to do? There must have been a stunned silence as the people waited to hear what He would say. And then verse 7 says this, Come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering. He said this to Aaron, by the way. Come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and the people. Sacrifice the offering that is for the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. And then look at verse 23. The priest took an animal and slaughtered it so that the blood of the animal was poured out. The blood was then taken to the altar. The people must have held their breath as they watched to see what happened next. They did not have to wait long. Verse 23 says, Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord 
capital Yahweh, appeared to all the people. The presence of God returned when there is an atonement made, making something wrong right. If the presence of God is to invade your life, you need atonement. God was back. And that could only mean that what had been wrong for seven months had finally been put right. The Lord gave the clearest evidence of His presence, not only in the cloud, but also in the fire. Verse 24, in Leviticus chapter 9, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and they fell face down. I think there's a book written by Matt Redmond, Face Down, a Worship. Fell face down. And if you want to read uh, Exodus chapter 40, the last chapter, verse 34 to 35, also spells out, say, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Wow. Can you imagine in the evening when all these people went back to their tent to sleep? Maybe I suspect there's a conversation between a husband and a wife. The husband said, I've never seen anything quite like what happened today. Whoever would have imagined that shedding the blood of an animal would bring the presence of God. We were sorry. We were pleading on Moses to be our mediator. We were obedient down to the T, thinking that by constructing this, God will return. But it was actually the shedding of the animal's blood that would bring back God's presence. And the wife said, yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? I can't really understand why the sacrifice did it. When all those months of being sorry and all those months of obedience and even Moses offered to lay down his life for us, didn't. I don't know. There must be something very powerful about a sacrifice that involves the shedding of blood. Anyway, we have learned something new, is it? Where there is sin, we need a sacrifice. It's the sacrifice and the shedding of blood that makes atonement with God. I think this message is very clear for us in the New Testament uh, believers now, a few thousand years later. It's a mirror, isn't it? Hebrews chapter 10 said, day after day, verse 11, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Maybe cover, yes? But can never take away. But when this priest, referring to Jesus, who is a superior High priest. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who were being made holy. For by one sacrifice, verse 14, don't forget this, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Atonement through Jesus Christ. Thank you for staying up, hanging on for so long. Let me just finish with this very simple illustration and then I'll pray. 
the mother of a nine-year-old boy named Mark received a phone call in the middle of the afternoon. It was a teacher from her son's school. And the teacher said, Ma'am, something unusual happened in your son's third grade class today. Your son did something that surprised me so much that I thought you should know about it immediately. That was not a particularly comforting thing to say to her. The teacher continued, Nothing like this has happened in all my years of teaching. This morning, I was teaching a lesson on creative writing. And as I always do, I tell the story of the ant and the grasshopper. The ant works hard all summer. He stores up plenty of food. But the grasshopper plays all summer and does no work. And then winter comes, the grasshopper begins to starve because he has no food. So he begs, please, Mr. Ant, you have so much food. Please let me eat. And then I said to my class, boys and girls, your job is to write the end of the story. Your son, Mark, raised his hand. Teacher, may I draw a picture instead? Well, yes, Mark, if you like, you may draw a picture, but first you must write the ending to the story. As in all the years past, she said, most of the students said the end shed his foot through the winter. And both the ant and the grasshopper lived. A few children said, No, Mr. Grasshopper, you should have worked in the summer. Now I have just enough food for myself. So the ant lives and the grasshopper died. But your son ended the story in a way different from any other child ever. He wrote, So the ant gave all his food to the grasshopper. And the grasshopper lived through the winter. And the ant died. That's the story of the gospel. The atonement was done by Christ, dying on the cross for us. And as a result, it brings back the presence of God into us. May you... Uh, Come to Jesus if you have not. It is not through how sorry you are alone. You need that. It is not just about obedience to the law, down to the T to be saved. That is important, but it can't save you. It is not by having another mediator. It can't. And it's only through this great high priest of Jesus that can save you and forgives you and can bridge the gap and atone, making something wrong right and be united with God once again. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you. I realized that I needed an atonement for my sins and I realized that nothing I can do will ever atone for my sins. I thank you today that Jesus Christ has offered the atonement through his death on the cross and that his sacrifice covers my sin. Forgive, take away my sin. Having put my trust in the blood of Jesus Christ, 
I rest in what He has done to make atonement for my sins. And on the basis of what Christ has done for me, I ask that your blessing and your presence remain on me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for amazing cross that delivers us. And now you dwell in us. Your presence is back because of Jesus in our lives. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. May the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, His unconditional and unfailing love of God, and the empowering fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.